Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther, a podcast from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in the middle of the biggest hearted city ever, Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host today with the raddest of co-producers, Troy Eller English. What's shaken English? Uh, not much for the past year. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a fun year, hasn't it? That's one way to, to put it, yes. Yeah. I know, yeah, there's so many things to say about this year. And we're coming across the one year, we are on the one year anniversary of when the state of Michigan started shutting down with the spread of COVID-19. And at Wayne State, remember scrambling? It was uh, like a bug out on the TV show MASH. Yeah. <laughs> it was. No wonder I enjoyed it so much because MASH was the best show ever. <laughs> and thinking that, you know, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, we had no idea what was going on. Um, we were like throwing everything in a box and heading home and not knowing if we were going to be back in a couple of weeks or a month. And all the while, we had a new director starting at the Ruther Library. Alika Jirasi was, you know, she never made it into the building to start her, her new gig. She sent us an email saying, hi, and basically, hold on, folks. Um, we don't know what's going on. We were all excited to get going, rolling in 2020 uh, with a new director. We had all these grand ideas, and then, bam, pandemic hits. Doors slammed shut, and we can't come in. But, folks, as you are aware, the Ruther Library never stopped. Podcasts were being recorded. Troy and I figured it out. Um, collections were made available online. And we managed to figure out how to help researchers, all from the leadership of our new director. So this podcast is on the anniversary of when she started. So we thought this would be a good idea to have a cool conversation with her. Now, who is she? Well, she has a BA in labor studies from SUNY Empire College, uh, MLIS from Long Island University, which she completed in 2008. Then she jumped right into getting an MA program of, for, of labor studies at CUNY. Uh, graduating in 2011. She worked at Queens Library, the Tanimit Library at NYU, and she was even a research analysis for AFSCME District 37, which makes complete sense now why she likes reports and numbers. So, you know, that makes complete sense. So <laughs> I get it now. Um, Alika moved up to the academic letter and started working at the Catherwood Library at Cornell University and was assistant director of that library before moving here to Detroit to become our director of the Ruth Library. March 2020. Um, she's well published. She focuses basically on library workers, wages in the library field, and union activity. Her latest work was she was a guest editor with Emily Drabinsky and Roxanne Shirazi um, in the fall of the 2019 issue of Library Trends that focused on articles that were to, quote, to advance a shared understanding and analysis of library labor from a worker center perspective. So without further ado, let's talk to Alika. So, Alika, thank you for joining us on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan and Troy, for inviting me. I'm so pleased to be joining you for tales from the Ruther Library. I know it, it is an amazing podcast. We have millions of listeners and it keeps growing. So, but this is about you. We want to know more about the director, the new director of the Ruther mm -hmm. Library. So first off, how did you get involved with being an archivist or what attracted you to the libraries? 
always uh, the, the origin story is always really important in libraries and archives, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in my case, I was, you know, kind of kind of adrift in in my mid undergraduate years, I had taken some time off from from kind of unsuccessful first couple of years of undergraduate and, you know, was working full time and, and traveling and had a really kind of keen sense that I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life as, you know, in a commitment type of way. So I was waiting tables, getting a sense that this wasn't going to be um, really my long-term uh, desired outcome, um, but I still didn't quite know what I wanted. And I had a very strong sense that I didn't want to go back to college and enroll into a degree program unless I knew what knew what the plan was. And luckily around that same time, I was hanging around the college library of my hometown. Um, which is something that I did. I grew up spending a lot of times in time in libraries. Um, you know, child of a single parent mom. We went to the library together. We read books. We hang. We hung out. It was something I was really used to doing. And luckily, I ran into a librarian hosting a. Um, I think it was a library week <laughs> display promoting careers in libraries and archives. And all of a sudden, it was like I had this light bulb above my head. You know oh, you can do that for a job. And I had a lovely conversation with her. It was a, it was a woman, of course. Um, and she, this was one of the most fortuitous interactions I had early on. She said to me, you know, it doesn't matter what you major in for your undergraduate. You can have any type of degree before you go to library school. And I was like, oh, wow, cool. So I kind of filed away, like, I can do this, but I need to, this is why I need to go back to school. So I re-enrolled in school, ended up that first semester taking a labor history class. And, um, you know, that eventually got me to where I am now. But I understood very keenly that the career that I wanted to plan for, I had to be really happy about where I went to work every day and had to have a sense like, okay, this is where I want to be and spend my time. And libraries and archives, it just made so much sense to me. And I continue to feel that way. I'd rather be here. I'd rather be in a library. I'd rather be in a building full of manuscripts and, and documents than be in an office. I know. I, I think I think we all archivists have that light bulb moment. It's like, wow, I could do that for a living. <laughs> do something that I really enjoy doing, reading, hanging out with old manuscripts and feeling history. And that was never really presented to me like in high school, right? Or in grade nope. school and in, in jobs people have. Nobody ever said to me, you can be a labor archivist or you can be a labor librarian and this is what it is. Now, how did labor come involved with all this? I mean, so when I started out, it was I was toying with the idea of either working in a religious archives, mm -hmm, because I believe mm -hmm. part of the religious aspect of led a lot of social movements, because I've always been involved with social movements, or labor. Mm -hmm. And when I did my internship at a um, synagogue in Richmond, Virginia, it was like, this is so boring, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and so of course I went to you, know, let's do labor. Mm -hmm. How did you fall into this social history labor aspect of archives? Well, you know, as I just said, around the around the same time, I had gone back to undergrad after a period of time and happened to take a labor history class. And I hadn't really thought of labor as a, as, as a dis discrete concept at that point. Although when I step back and I look at the time period that it was, and this was around 
circa 2000, right? So it was the peak anti-globalization movement. It was the marriage of Teamsters and Turtles, this, this new era, post-John Sweeney era, where labor and social justice were one thing. And it was a movement for economic justice, multiracial economic justice. And people were out in the streets, you know, confronting global capital, co confronting major institutions. And it was a really exciting time to be a politically active young person. Um, so when I sat down in this class, you know, actually it was not quite sat down because I was in a, um, a college for working adults where a lot of classes were done on a correspondence basis, so pre-online classes. So when I kind of metaphorically sat down in this class and engaged with the material, it provided a lens for me that was new, but yet felt, I, I really, it really resonated with me. Like I said, I came from a single parent household um, for my family, um, you know, having a good, union job was a pathway to security um, and, and it, the way that a woman could support a household or, or join a household that was financially stable. So it provided a lens to me to have more of a, you know, a class and economic justice-based analysis. Um, so I fell into it, ended up majoring in economics and labor studies. And already I was like, okay, I'm going to be a librarian. So I thought, well, what is this? What does that mean for a job? And while I was doing writing a paper later on in my um, in my class, I stumbled upon the website for the Tamament Archives, uh, the Tamament Library and Wagner Archives at New York University. Um, as we all know, a peer labor archives based in New York State, where I'm from, and um, that was like yet another light bulb. People <laughs> do this. <laughs> Holy, I love books. I love social justice and I love archives. Yeah. I can make it all one yeah. big career. This is, that's crazy. Exactly. And like, and, you know, I've had other iterations of being in the labor, right? There are so many ways to be part of a labor movement, be in the labor movement. I've been rank and file. I've been union staff. Um, you know, I've worked in various capacities and organizations and worker centers. Like there are a lot of things to do in the labor movement. Um, and, but that entry point though, taking that class and connecting it with, with the social movement around me. That's great. That's great that you have these opportunities for light bulbs to be clicking up yeah. and on in there. That's great. How lucky. Yeah. And you're lucky to be at the Ruther. <gasps> so much. Oh so my goodness. That's my next question. Why yeah. the Ruther? You're coming from Cornell. You're coming from New York state. Come to Detroit and hang out in the Ruther. I know the search committee asked this probably last year. Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, Ruther? my answer is, of course, the Ruther. <laughs> of course, That's the true. Ruther. Yeah. And when I look out uh, back at some of my experiences that got me here, you know, it, as I've shared it, and, and I'll, I'll recount, it could have been in some form the Ruther at an earlier stage if, if, if everything had lined up properly. Um, you know, a little bit farther down the line in my undergraduate career, I, I contemplated moving to Detroit and transferring to Wayne State because as I thought about what library school might look like, I started looking at schools that had both labor studies and library science programs. And right, Wayne State is one of those very few places. And I actually came out here on a road trip that brought us through Canada 
um, in my big old 1986 Chevrolet Caprice, just kind of <laughs> rattling around on the road. I came here in January um, and stayed downtown and went to this like, uh, you know, undergraduate fair um, to check things out. And, you know, there are a lot of other things going on in my life and I decided to stay in New York state, but, you know, it was, it always stayed with me even before I asked, started formally working in libraries, that this was a place that married these two areas of inquiry that I was passionate about and somehow wanted to combine in my life. And so as I, as I proceeded in my career, you know, I ended up working at, at the Tamament. That was my first labor archives job. I worked there as both in, um, as I was finishing up my library degree and, um, and, and then ended up kind of proceeding elsewhere and then ended up working at Cornell at the labor library. And obviously like Ruther was one of the other major libraries and archives, our peer institution. And as I proceed in my career and, and have the sense of myself as part of this continuum of labor archivists and librarians, we know there aren't that many of us, especially compared to, you know, our, our perceived heyday of a few decades ago. So it was always very closely attuned to, to what Ruther was doing, even if I didn't know all of you um, directly, we certainly had plenty of people in common, many predecessors in common, and that worked closely together. And so by the time the position was was posted and I became aware of it, um, it felt like a natural progression. And then, of course, when I came and met all of you, you know, it's clicked. We've all been part of this same, um, you know, movement of, of documenters going back decades, trying to capture uh, labor and social movements. Um, so why Ruther? Why? Of course, the Ruther. <laughs> I'm so pleased to be here. So proud to be part of well, we're glad I to have say. you here as well. I mean, it is it is? Yeah, it's the Ruther. When I was looking <laughs> at grad school, um, I was interning at AFT and they said, go to University of Maryland because you can work at the Muni Center and do that. Or you go to Detroit, you go mm -hmm. to Wayne State, you go to the Ruther Library. Mm -hmm. And that was just like, it's a no brainer. I'll just Absolutely. go to Detroit. Well, I've never been to Detroit, so might as well, you know, I've been up and down <laughs> the East Coast. Let's let's check out the Midwest. And yeah, it's the Ruther. You know, we're Ruther. a fun place. Great place. And everybody should come visit once we are allowed to. Now, yes. let's get into the need of, so you came into Detroit, uh, yes. ready to start your new job as director of the Ruther Library, and you had great plans. I know you had tons of plans because so knowing you, you had some great ideas of then. Planful. A pandemic hits worldwide. <laughs> yes. Oh, what a welcome, welcome committee that was for you to come here. Yes. So how did, what was your thought process? How did you pivot so quickly to mm -hmm. ensure that the library and the, the Ruther staff were safe and we're, we're still producing things? So. Well, I arrived in Detroit, March 2nd, um, after a flurry of moving my household and, you know, my family. And we got here, started unpacking, settling down. I think it was, you know, a week before we came up for air and all of a sudden looked around and we're like, oh no, okay. Like we had a sense of what was, was happening, but it became very clear very quickly that, that there was going to be a shutdown and, and a massive shutdown that impacted my ability to start my new job <laughs> and to join you all right in the in the way that we all had envisioned um so i mean beyond the 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 back end administrative details of even just getting me into the email system um 
which was was pretty intense. Just, you know, I, I want to note that my first day of work, the Monday, March 23rd, was the Monday um, after the preceding Friday when the university was shut down. So my very first day was the very first week of the university shutdown. And absolutely, my immediate concern coming in was how am I going to connect with staff, the Ruther staff? I, I knew that time was of the essence to, to reach out. And I think initially I just sent an email like, I'm here, I'm trying to figure out the systems, I'm trying to get into the systems, but I'm here and you'll be hearing from me, right? And I had a very keen sense that in the absence of being able to join you all in the building um, and just be with you, that it was so important for me to both as soon as I could convene with you all in a collective sense, like in a group, but also begin reaching out to all of you one by one. Mm -hmm. Um, I was very concerned about how everybody was, about physical safety, about your sense of of feeling like things were under control. Um, I knew how how large the sense of responsibility there was amongst their staff to care for the building and the collections and each other. Um, and I wanted to, for you to all know how much I considered that my responsibility as well. Um, so that took up a lot of my first week. And also, I believe my third day on the job, the Wednesday, I, I went into the building for the first time. And I had asked you all, and you know, I knew it was a, a bit of a stretch, but I recall asking you all, please don't go to the building. Please let me deal with this. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. stay put, stay safe. I know you're worried about the building, but like your safety is so important. At that point, we knew nothing about the virus, mm-hmm. only that it was very clear that Detroit was a hot spot. Um, so I was so lucky you all stayed put. You let me go into the building. I walked around with <laughs> Brandon, our fantastic facilities coordinator, and just made sure everything was shut down, closed down, that I knew how to access the building, turn off and on the alarms, like the basics. 101. So a lot of these logistical practicalities consumed my first few weeks. And and then I would say the first couple of months were trying to do my best to connect with everybody collectively in 101 to build a like a parallel (laughs) relationship to what I had originally envisioned and what I think we all had originally envisioned. And I think somehow through it all together, we've fashioned what is the current normal, right? Right. <laughs> right. We kind of, yeah, all right, let's toot our own horn then. Okay. Because <laughs> um, we did some pretty amazing things so far um, for what an archive library does for its yes. um, patrons, for its donors, for Absolutely. the community itself. Um, toot, go ahead, toot away. And all right. let's tell everybody what we've done over the pandemic the past year. All right. Well, I would say we made an astonishing pivot to providing remote access to our patrons and donors and also to each other. Very early on, we convened and started, um, you know, really documenting or, you know, pooling our trying to get a sense of what we had access to digitally while we were working remotely. And that involved both not only saying, okay, what have we formally digitized and is available on the servers? But I recall meetings where all of the archivists that do reference 
we're going through, you know, their files and their emails being like, okay, what did I digitize for a reference request? Let's get this on the servers. Let's pull all of this and see what we have available and can provide access to. And that willingness to just get in there and figure it out and pull our resources together and then use it as a way to strategize around access for external researchers and donors. I mean, one, I'm just really proud of, of that willingness and in, in desire and motivation and, and how it impacted our services from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, then at the same time, there was, con- despite we were in a global pandemic under emergency conditions and all I'm sure dealing with kind of pretty big challenges in our, you know, in our personal lives, there was still a desire to, you know, still launch digital collections in the midst of all of this. I, you know, I was so proud to play a small part in debuting um, the Detroit Revolutionary Movement's collections, making them digitally accessible, which is a project that Ruther Archivist had been working on for years in digitizing the collections um, in conjunction with the donors, in in documenting the research demand for them. You know, obviously many books had been written using these primary sources. This was a, a well-known collection that we had that we owned, but really committing to to chipping away at at this at the digitization of, of the materials and then figuring out the logistics of making them accessible through our archive space um, collections management system. Um, we did that in the spring of 2020 under major pandemic uh, conditions and debuted it. And the interest and and excitement about it was just infectious. I saw, you know, national, international interest as as we shared it and certainly so much great feedback from activists and historians and well-known figures in Detroit who who really cherish this movement history that we're so lucky to host here at the Ruther and appreciation that we had invested the resources to do it because like a lot of very important movement collections, um, you know, historically the financial interest in this has not been there in the same way that it might be for, um, you know, other types of archival collections. This is really a labor of love from the staff and from Detroit's activist community. And uh, so I'm super proud to be just a tiny part of the, the very end of it. Oh, I know. And it's it, it was. It was one of these things that we've been working on and working on and working on, putting it together. I think it, it, I think the pandemic finally pushed us over the edge to say, all right, t- now we have to do it. No matter if there's faults or anything in there, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. do it. We have to do it. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we were, you were a part of that as well. What else did we do? What else did we do that was unique and fun that we can like brag about? <laughs> well, I'm going to say this may, I, right? Unique and fun is in the, the, the eye of the beholder. But I just want to acknowledge that we, you know, as, as the campus reopened in a modified um, manner for Wayne State affiliates in the fall, um, us like every single in-person provide, service provider on campus had to completely retool our procedures to be able to observe the safety protocols we understood were so important, not just to everyone, but as workers, as, as archives workers, 
Um, and we completely redesigned our service protocols to allow for in very limited in-person research for Wayne State affiliates and to continue to allow our donors the access to their records that they are you know, legally entitled to as part of our, our agreements with them. Um, everybody was involved. We were measuring distances between different tables, figuring out how we would both retrieve, allow access to and return boxes to stacks um, with appropriate quarantine periods to allow the, the virus to dissipate. We did that by you know, reading uh, scientific reports, uh, canvassing best practices in the field um, and doing that in a way that I think from what I understand we all felt comfortable returning in a very limited fashion. And we began that in the fall, um, each of us coming in maybe one to two times a week, rotating our shifts so that, you know, we were using shared spaces in a safe way. And that's allowed us to continue to, you know, provide limited access from, I believe it was early September through now um, in a, unbroken manner with the exception of the holiday closure. So I just think that's a tremendous lift, a tremendous achievement. I, th I think so too. It, it, it not only were we able to satisfy the needs of our researchers, grad students needed to get their dissertations done. Yep. We were able to help. Yes. And donors, of course, the usual, you know, usual requests of finding a white piece of paper or something for a Exactly. And we were, we, we were able to do it. We, we, pers we host and, and protect the records of active organizations. And this is always something I love talking about with, with fellow archivists who may be primarily working with the papers of, of dormant or um, you know, older organizations no longer on, in activity or deceased people. We work with active organizations that are still out there doing business and require access to their papers as part of the normal course of their work. And this is a major part of the work provided um, under their library's ceiling. It is, it is. And, <laughs> and <laughs> it's always fun. As now, you know. As I do know, as Troy knows, we, uh, we battle that every day mm -hmm. with our donors, which we love. Um, but this brings up another question kind of in like in this fashion is like, we're, we we changed some of our old procedures and protocols. What is putting on our archival administrative hat? Yes. What is the new normal for archives? Do you think where right. is where are we heading? Because we're hearing about how the higher ed is changing. How K twelve is going to be changed. Archives are going to change. Mm -hmm. What what do we see happening there? I spent a lot of my time thinking about this <laughs> and wearing my archives administration hat. Um, and. You know, when I look back at the past year, you know, I see how we we pivoted right from providing a, a dominant type of service or a dominant mode of service, the physical, to providing, a, you know, to predominantly providing remote access or digital access. And I am absolutely certain that when, um, you know, the the pandemic subsides as we currently know it, as we move into, you know whatever normal looks like going forward. I don't, it'll certainly be a new normal. The past is the past. We will be <laughs> shaped going forward by what we've all experienced together. I certainly expect there to be pretty high expectations for digital and remote access to collections that exists 
at the same time as a, a research and demand for physical access. And as an administrator, somebody who oversees the distribution of resources within a, you know, a, a kind of a discrete uh, amount and under certain demands, um, I th certainly think there's a reckoning to be had about what is possible, what is both physically possible, what's possible in terms of our capacity, in terms of staffing, in terms of funding, and there will need to be some type of, of reconciliation of, of, of this. Um, both modes require significant resources. On the library side of the house, you know, I came out of working of libraries the past decade or so, and now I'm in archives, and there are some differences. In one, you know, there was always a, a tacit or implicit um, understanding on the library side that some types of digital access would supersede or replace physical access. And with archives, it's completely not the case. Mm -hmm. We have an obligation to protect, preserve, provide access to physical primary sources. And, you know, providing a, a, a digital facsimile augments that. It, it doesn't replace that. So how can we reasonably and effectively and, uh, you know, do it well to, to provide both courses of access? Um, often, you know, without significant additional resources. I, you know, I, I reject some of these, these expectations. I, I think we really need to examine what's possible and, and look at some new ways of, um, you know, distributing these expectations within our peers, um, with our organizations, with even what our baseline expectations are, because, um, you know, in 2022, when we're hosting researchers back in the building, yeah. hosting researcher <laughs> appointments, um, we're going to have to make some choices. What they are, you're right, that's for us to explore, for us to negotiate, for us to, you know, learn from our peers. Um, but we certainly can't do both equally, right? The pivot. The pivot understands that you go from one thing to another, not that you do both things simultaneously. Right. And so I think this we, is what I grapple with as an administrator. And I think that's what we've learned for this past year. That mm -hmm. uh, when face to face with it, you you make the action happen. And enough with the committees and deciding and the talking. I mean, we we learn to be very quick about it and make things work. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we have to. Absolutely. And that's what we'll be facing soon. All right. So when twenty Later in the year, 2022, who knows? We're all back at the Ruther. I'm able to make coffee again at the Ruther and not bring my own in. <laughs> <laughs> we can share punchkeys. We can share, we can have a party. Yeah. What are some of the objectives you want the Ruther to be doing um, when there's this new normal of whatever that will be? Well, I do very much want us to take the time and the space to celebrate the safe return to the building together, right? I, I want us to have plan some great events, inviting people back into the building. You know, there are some 
uh, certainly celebrations and and in exhibits that were planned during the closure that I really look forward to returning to. I think all I heard is like, we're having a party, right? We're yeah. A big okay. Party. okay. That's basically what I was saying. We're going to have a series of parties <laughs> and, you know, different like, themes. We've spent so much time on zoom together as a team. <laughs> I can't wait to hang out with you all in a room together and do some planning and walk around the building together. You know, all of these things, when I think about what I'm really looking forward to doing is to give that that time in that celebration and that reaffirmation of our sharing of us physical space together, honor it to celebrate it because we've been through so much together and I really don't want to paper that over in our, in our, you know, in the hurry to get back to normal operations. Um, and I think that type of like cathartic celebration is going to be really essential with us kind of marking time and marking the experience and honoring the experience that we've had this year. And yes, absolutely. Um, what new collections can we bring in and, you know, process and make available and yes, all of that. But I am most excited to, you know, be in the same space with, with their staff and to invite our patrons back and to um, really, really enjoy that together. I think there's going to be an air of, I don't know, uh, hugging <laughs> and um, some sort of feeling of gratitude when we all get back into the building. Even when a researcher comes through the doors, where it is, I think we're all going to be like, hi, how are you? So can good I to help see you? you. Can I help you? <laughs> yeah, Thank exactly. You. Exactly. And also the, the celebration of survival and the, um, you know, the, the memorializing of those who we've lost, many of whom we've lost in, in the various movements that we document. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's important to, to honor, to mark, to document. And that's another thing we've been doing. We've been making sure to document the now of our mm-hmm. donors, as yes. well as the community of Wayne State University yes. and Detroit. And I think all of us different archivists who deal with the different collections, we are looking at it specifically to make sure we capture that. Mm-hmm. So when the time comes, we'll be having, like every archive, every library, every institution is collecting as much as possible about this pandemic Black Lives Matter, the elections. So yes, and we we spent a fair amount of time talking about that this year, and and engaging in active collecting. Um, I know we have multiple different uh, collecting initiatives happening in our in our um, partner organizations, spearheaded by the archivists, the collections archivists, um, oral history collections, um, documenting of the organizations as they navigate this absolutely unprecedented time. Um, you know, there's a I look forward to the continued work in, in making that information accessible to our users. Um, then we also engaged in, in significant um, uh, online collecting of COVID-19 experiences in the university, Southeast Michigan, Michigan workers. Um, you know, the time will come where we're going to be looking back on that and making them more accessible. Um, and I, I think there's still significant work to be done with our partner organizations and with organizations and individuals in Detroit that we have longstanding relationships with to, to provide a proper home to people's artifacts, experiences, documentation, 
um, for, for future researchers to understand. And oh, to absolutely. do that in a way that's sensitive and respectful um, in understanding that, you know, um, this has been a very hard year. It has. And I know we'll be handling it with, with dignity and grace, as we always yes. do. Yes, as we do. Now, speaking of experiences, pandemic has taught us a few things to slow down and relax. So this is the fun part. <laughs> <clears throat> what did you binge? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and what what kind of books did what did what did you hit? I mean, like I I yeah. finally started reading Murakami books that I've been wanting <laughs> nice. to do for 20, 30 years, you know. Nice. Finally got to that and up to my cooking game. So how about you, Alika? What what did you up what did you binge <laughs> that well, stands out? I think we all know that time has been really weird. So yes. it's a little hard for me to kind of look back in the year and pull out the highlights. But so I was thinking a little bit about what was what was new to my bedside and, and new to my coffee table. What did I acquire when I went out to a used bookstore or order online? Um, well, I certainly started building my collection of books about Detroit. There you go. Um, this one is from my office, but I've been looking through it. It's the buildings of Detroit, a history. And oh, cool. I am a new resident of Detroit. I live in this LaSalle Gardens neighborhood. Um, and so I've been learning a lot about my surroundings and also, of course, in better understanding our collections, um, our EV collections, our relationship with various neighborhood associations. This is an area of our collecting that, um, you know, it's very important to us. So I have to understand it. I have to know where I live. Um, so I've been really enjoying both you know, doing reading, reading uh, and acquiring books on Detroit, and then going out with my with my husband and we explore neighborhoods together, or we, um, you know, investigate different histories of, of buildings, of, you know, associations, of different businesses here. So it's been a major part of my pandemic life that even though I can't quite go out there and make the personal co connections that I had envisioned and be kind of part of things here, I've been able to you know, achieve an approximation of that just with my physical surroundings. So it's very cool. Detroit is so cool. Yes, I love it. So yeah, yeah so great that's been place. a big part You're of it. You're finding all the cool stuff. Yeah. I do. Somehow, somehow, right? And then yeah. like everybody been binging on, oh goodness, I've consumed so much media in the past year. <laughs> <laughs> a film that I saw recently that I really enjoyed that did have a an appearance of, of Detroit and the auto plants in it was um, Sylvie's Love. And I, okay. I think it was on Amazon Prime with Tessa Thompson. Oh, that was a fantastic movie, fantastic period piece, beautiful love story, fantastic acting, cinematography. Oh. Really enjoyed it. I recommended it to many people after I saw it. Um, I'm quite ready. Lovely. I'm, okay. I'm writing it down now. Okay. Sylvie's Love. I, I'm always looking for more because it seems I've watched everything on Netflix and Amazon. And yes. Yeah. All right. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank I really enjoyed me. the conversation and I know Likewise. our millions of listeners will love listening to our new director of the Ruther library. Thank you so much. It was such a nice opportunity to get to introduce myself, say hello. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what, the next year or two brings and uh you know how we how we continue to document it at Ruther.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Three books I have to read. One's on Flint, one's on communists, and the other one's on teachers. Okay? All right. Sounds like fun reading. What's the Flint uh, one about? That's that's my hometown, one. you know. I know. It's a new one. It's about the Flint sit-downs. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. That's that's all people talk about Flint. Michael Moore or the Flint sit-downs. So. Yeah. Oh, also the lead water. We're also very oh, yeah. proud of the lead water as well. So proud. That's true. That's the more modern history that we're living through. That's right. And I don't like living through my- history. <laughs> I like reading about it. I like putting it in a folder and putting it away. Being a part of history is not so good. <laughs> no. Gen Xers were so used to just kind of like not living through history because nothing happened during our generation. And we just laid around on the couch to watch TV. <laughs> I'm not only am I used to this pandemic because I lived it already. Every day. <laughs> for fun. Every, for funsies. For, fun, for funsies. <laughs> <laughs>